It's November 16th, 1995, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. It's safe to say that Euro Disneyland, now known as Disneyland Paris, had a pretty rocky start when back in April 1992 it flung open its doors to welcome 60,000 people to its grand opening and saw a trickle of just 25,000 people come through the door presaging years of financial losses. So when on this day in 1995 the park reported its first annual profit, there really must have been much kind of mousied celebration and I presume Scrooge McDuck money counting in the Disney halls of power. (laughs) But that joy wasn't necessarily that long-lived because looked back from this vantage point, Euro Disney, as the parent company of Disneyland Paris is still called, uh, has in fact recorded losses in 18 of its first 25 years. So it's fair to say that the park had not just a rocky start but also a rocky (laughs) middle as well and uh, hopefully not a rocky (laughs) end um, because it is a great place to visit. I've just been there on holiday. Um, But I think... It speaks to the ambition of the Disney company that they weren't prepared to cut corners on it. I mean, that's basically it, isn't it? They spent an enormous amount of money, so much more, so many multiples more than any other European corporation would ever spend on building a theme park, that it it almost couldn't make money unless it was a massive blockbuster hit straight out the gates. Yeah, in fact, after just two years, in summer 1994, it had $3 billion worth of debt. If it's accumulated $3 billion worth of debt in two years, if you're looking at that graph, you're thinking... Mm, it really can't stay open that many more years before we're going to have to close it. But then they had this gigantic rebrand, which was rebranding it as Disneyland Paris, as it's known now. And then the real turning point came the following year, in, so 1995, where we are, when they opened Space Mountain. Mm. I think the thing that the Disney executives had underestimated was the fact that the things that made Disney World in, in the US so magical was that it had these european style Mm. castles quaint villages etc whereas when you open that in france people are naturally less wowed and fascinated by being able to wander around a medieval style european village you know they can get that anywhere and that was one of the main complaints but from the first visitors was that they're just you know from their point of view there just weren't any attractions yeah and i think that they had this sort of pan-european idea like a really american take on what europe was all about which kind of colored the difficulty in even selecting france as the place to put the thing in the first place they'd considered italy spain and they thought about Britain. You're making this sound like a purely intellectual decision, Aaron. And then buckets of cash were thrown at them by the French government is the bit you're missing out. (laughs) Well, there was that. You know, it's presented sometimes as like, oh, there was hostility from the French people towards Disneyland at this carbuncle that had been forced upon them. Well, the French government really desperately wanted the Disney Corporation to build there (laughs) rather than in Spain. They gave them a tax break. They promised they'd build them a train line right into the park. And the thing that they had in their back pocket that even Spain didn't have with its kind of California-like weather was Paris, which, of course, is basically the world's biggest tourist destination anyway. So the thinking was, well, we've got all the visitors. What they'd underestimated is that if you're staying in Paris, you probably won't want to go and stay in a theme hotel down the road. You'll probably go for the day and then come back to your actual Parisian hotel, <laughs> which is a bit of a flaw when you're building 10 hotels with your theme park. And this is a big problem with the sort of the finances that underpinned their original ideas because they had this thought that they could do the same thing that they do in the US where you go and, you, like, you don't just go for a day in the US. You get, like, a three-day ticket or a week-long ticket and people really do sort of set up camp in uh, one location and then go to the parks, often plural, from there. But arguably with Paris on your front doorstep, 
doorstep. You know, you've you've got this other theme park <laughs> of a city already yeah. there to be competed with before you even go to Space Mountain. And actually, the Space Mountain that they built to try to do this massive brand revival years later was faster than the ones that they had elsewhere. And also, it's the only Space Mountain that goes upside down. It loops the loop. It cost $90 million. So at the time was the world's most expensive roller coaster. And they used a sort of Jules Verne theme. Um, it's weird talking about this now in the past tense because, I, like I said, I was there uh, just last week and it is now, my heart sinks saying this, a Star Wars hyperspace mountain ride. Come oh. on, guys. Come on. I love it. It's like just like putting different seasonal wreaths on your front door, isn't it? Then it's like, <laughs> just to give it a little paint job. Look, now it's a Star Wars space mountain. You're like, what have yeah, we bought? Okay. Oh, yeah, Star Wars. Oh, yeah, just call it Star Wars. I mean, it's an iconic ride. I can't believe that. Anyway, it worked. Uh, and people say that the thing that turned Disneyland around essentially was the two trains, Space Mountain, but also the SNCF station that opened at the gates of Disneyland finally being connected in this year to the Channel Tunnel. So Brits could get the Eurostar from London to Disneyland Paris in three hours, which is transformative, I can tell you, having just driven there in a day. And they also had another huge draw for the French, which was alcohol, which previously had not been served at any Disney resorts. And what I like is that they did this before they brought in Space Mountain. So people complaining there aren't enough attractions. And instead of building more attractions, they were like, you know what, maybe if people were drunk, they'd just be happier with what we have. So they ended up deciding that Disneyland Paris would be the first Disney resort that would serve alcohol. And actually now in the US resorts, you can buy alcohol with meals. But it was just one of several Disney rules that had to be broken in order to make Disneyland Paris a success. When they first opened, as many as 3,000 staff, which is a quarter of the total staff, quit in the first month after opening due to Disney's very stringent working conditions. If you're an employee at Disney... Cast member. Sorry, yes. If you're a cast member, there's rules about things like tattoos. Can you say it smiling, please, Rebecca? And Aaron, can you please remove that facial hair whilst you're laughing? (laughs) Well, that's the thing. You know, the rules are very, very strict in a way that the French employees were not on board with. You know, not just governing personal appearance, but your behaviour as well. And that was just like a whole alien work culture. You do have to be constantly positive. I mean, that's the famous Disney customer service thing isn't it that's why people like having it on their cvs even if you get an entry-level job at disneyland it's a good thing because you've had the disney training in hospitality in the states and in france it couldn't be more different like one of the things that appealed to the disney corporation was that in france people have more holiday than anywhere else in the world basically they get Mm. five weeks a year paid holiday um but the flip side of that is working conditions that they have also have unions. You know, when I was there, there was a strike going on just last week outside the Magic Kingdom. It was hilarious trying to watch Mickey being kept away by his minders so they couldn't get a shot with Mickey in it of people striking at the same time. <laughs> yeah, and I've got to say that scab Mickey gets what's coming to him. <laughs> also, I think we have to remember what the cultural tensions were between France and the United States in the 1990s, which really exaggerated this sense of culture clash. Um, because now it's not so obvious, I think. But then there was a lot of worries about cultural imperialism. This was the time when all those laws came in in France, sort of mandating the amount of French music you had to hear on the radio and stuff like that. One artist called the plans for Euro Disney a cultural Chernobyl. And this is the feeling that the French had about this American company setting up in their country. And they felt threatened. Um, by American culture coming in and winning over their children. The first non-US Disney resort to open was Tokyo Disney in 1983. And I think that went so smoothly precisely because in Japan there is a big appetite for Americana that I think that that the Disney executives had 
concluded that it was okay to basically just do the same thing as they were doing in the US all around the world and people just eat it up. And in France was when they first found that that wasn't necessarily the case. And it didn't just inspire, you know, heated think pieces. There was an actual act of sabotage the night before opening of Disneyland. A bombing toppled a power pylon and caused outages at the park's six hotels. So, I mean, this was something that, I mean, obviously, you know, just one person in this instance, but it was inspiring a lot of passionate opinion. Yeah, they had this targeted advertisement on that question of, like, children in particular, that they had this nostalgic-themed advert that was meant to inspire children to go there. But it was really, that just added fuel to the fire of the debate, making these already, like, sceptical French parents even more reluctant to visit. I don't suggest that that inspired a bombing, necessarily, but, you know... All the French parents were like, Henri doesn't want to go to Camembert land anymore this summer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you joke, but part Asterix. Literally, Park Asterix is just down the road. So it was seen as a threat. Yeah. Did you go there on your recent holiday? No, I have been as a child to Park Asterix. It was a bit intense for my tastes. A bit too French, maybe. I recently found like that there's all of these Julia Donaldson, Gruffalo's or Groom on the Broom themed attractions, often attached to an actual castle, which looked pretty cool. But you know, you could do it on the cheap. You could get a couple of actors in and have it as like one thing among many things that might bring you to this particular location. Whereas Disneyland, it has to be enormous it has to be expensive and and to get those repeat visitors like me who love disney coming back you need to hit them with the theater of it every single time even as grown-ups so like you know i get a lump in my throat i'm not ashamed to say when i walk onto main street usa every single time (laughs) it's like a hotel isn't it it's like a five-star hotel kind of presenting itself and the theatricality of that and how everything needs to be perfect Except like times 10, you know, the music, the smells, the ambience, the characters. Yeah, children running everywhere with pure delight on their faces. It's impossible not to get taken away with it. And it's so perfect. It's ridiculous how perfect it is. The level of detail is staggering, but very expensive. How long does it last before you're done with it? You have to wait till you get in your first queue. About 90 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Tomorrow. To think that you can see newsreel footage of the end of an empire which had started in the 14th century. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.